Greetings and salutations, and welcome to The Good Lawyer Show. I am your host, Matt Scrivens, and I am delighted to have you aboard. Now, for those of you who have been listening for some time, know that we have two types of shows here. The first being The Future of Law, where we explore what is and what could be when it comes to lawyers, the business of law, and how the legal profession can better address the access to justice crisis that continues to haunt our society. The second type of show is Startup Sessions, where we interview entrepreneurs, experts, and investors to hash out the tools and mindset needed to turn your business into the rocket ship you know it can be. What is difficult about classifying today's show is that it is a hybrid. Today on the podcast, we have Thomas Walker, an entrepreneur who is currently serving as the Chief Operating Officer at Wildleaf Beverages and a partner at Bast Capital. In addition to being a successful business owner, Thomas actually began his career working as a lawyer at one of Canada's major law firms. This gives Thomas a unique perspective on both entrepreneurship and the law, two topics near and dear to our hearts at Good Lawyer, and both of which we delve into deeply on today's show. We discuss a wide array of topics, including the pressure law students face on procuring big law jobs and how it is easy to get caught up in that craze, why Thomas left the legal profession and what attracted him to entrepreneurship, how Thomas manages the relationships with his highly driven partners, the importance of prioritization and allowing some fires to burn, why you should always carry a bias towards action, as well as many, many others. Whether you are a lawyer, a law student, entrepreneur, business owner, or any combination of the above, Thomas has tons of wisdom to share, and I'm not just saying this, you are not going to want to miss this show. It's always a little humbling when your younger friend hits you with a few tons of wisdom you wished you possessed yourself, but I've always admired Thomas's philosophical approach to life, and it has been an honor to have him as a friend and now as a podcast guest. As a final note, I will quickly mention the show was recorded a couple of months ago, so some of the references are a touch dated. Alright, that's it for me. I hope you take as much from today's conversation as I know I did. Tommy, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Doing well, thank you. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, where are we finding you here today? I'm in beautiful British Columbia, Vancouver today. You moved recently. You've been living in California for the last uh, little bit. Uh, you're coming back north for the winter, as most people normally do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, my family all lives here, so I'm just home for the holidays. And you can't really do a, a two-day trip anymore in the time of COVID. So back for right. a little bit longer. You do quite a bit of traveling around. Has that been uh, affected by COVID? And how are you navigating that fun little wrinkle? <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been interesting for sure. I mean, we're most of the businesses that I, I work with are essential. So we haven't been slowed down from a day to day business perspective. But traveling has definitely become more interesting. And especially like coming back to Canada was a very not as fun scenario. But I mean, it's a good and a bad thing for the US that they've been bad about their restrictions, which is nice for traveling, but right. bad for the overall health of the country. Hopefully they get it figured out here sooner or later, because yeah, you don't want too many people sick. But were you ever scared of actually getting this yourself? Or was it something that you just knew you were taking that risk and, um, you know, hoping for the best? Yeah, well, it's funny, because the first month, like when, when it really started to pick up in March, I was, I was kind of remote and so I was not seeing anyone and just doing all my meetings over zoom and it did and, and it was kind of scary but then the next month I was in one of our facilities uh, with you know 100 people um, and you just realize that it's kind of a luxury to be even be able to be remote and to be able to not be connected to other people right. because for all the people that work in our facility they, that's how they make their living they have to go in so the idea yeah. of being you know this disconnected I'm going to stay at home and and you know, my brother-in-law is a police officer. My mother's a nurse. Like, you know, mm -hmm. most people in the world don't have the luxury of, of staying remote and hiding away from this. But it honestly, it, it's it's a little bit scary. But at the same time, once you get back to it, it's just, you know, follow the precautions, do everything you can, but you need right. to keep living life. I, I agree with you 100%. The, I'm involved with a couple of ventures myself and one of them does have a warehouse and 
you know, you need those warehouse staff there and, and, you know, pandemic or not, unfortunately that that's uh, a reality. But uh, before we jump into hearing about all these businesses that you got going on in the the various ventures for full disclosure for uh, our listeners here, me and Tommy actually knew each other from before we went to law school together and maybe we can just start there that obviously you are a, you know, world famous world traveling entrepreneur now, but uh, this all started in law school. So what attracted you to law school in the first place? And uh, maybe let's just talk a little bit about your journey through law and then into entrepreneurship. Sure. Yeah. So law school for me was, I originally, I did my undergrad in political science and and was first kind of got the idea of law because of some of the politicians that I followed and respected the the Barack Obamas, the Jean Chrétiens, people who oftentimes have legal backgrounds. And so that was what planted the seed. And then like any 22 year old, when you don't know what you're doing with your life, you say, I'm gonna write the LSAT and go to law school. <laughs> and and so I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it. Initially, it was kind of, uh, I think a political driven thing, but it as I got into law school, I realized I didn't wanna be into politics. Um, and I didn't know where that was going to take me. And, and I kind of fell for a little bit of it when I got into law school, which is the, I don't know the term for it, but the craze about big law. And, and I'm sure you remember, but in, in first year, when people are interviewing for articles and for summer positions, there becomes this thing that it's like this competition where you need to get summer articles or you're a nobody. And it was terrifying. And all of a sudden I was like racing for this thing that I didn't even know if I ever actually really wanted, but you're just like, I need to get a job at a big law firm. I don't know why, but I need to do it. I I remember it well. I remember actually, uh, it was about two weeks into our law school career that everyone was piling up to go to career day and I Mm -hmm. didn't sign up for it. I had no idea what it was, but to your point, everyone seemed like this was like a really important thing. And so I'm like, oh, okay, well, I better better go. And actually, funny enough, I, it was very important for me because you talk about that big law, but there's a lot of prestige, especially in law school around getting to these big firms. Um, and, and and to your point, it, I had no idea about the landscape of, of law coming into law school, but I soon was swept up in that insistent that it was big law or bust, which is such a fallacy that, and it's unfortunate that so many people do get caught up into that. Even as someone that did get a first year summer at a big, big firm, you know, it really, it seems like the end of the world, but it really isn't. No, no, for sure. And, and again, I ended up getting one as well. Right. Um, but it was, it was funny just how I think this is, you know, when I remember being young and, and when you hear a lot of young people talk about this, whether it's people graduating university or in law school, the, what do I do with my life? What do I do? And, right. and oftentimes we're kind of like sheep or cattle and we just go where everyone else is going and that definitely happened to me. And I, I like to think I'm not that kind of person, but I definitely became that kind of person momentarily. Uh, and it was the thing that I, I loved about it and, and that I'm so grateful for is summer articles is the best thing in the world that everyone should do because it's a teaser of what your life is going to be like. And that was really the turning point for me is getting in there, spend a summer doing this. And if you don't like a summer, imagine 40 years of that. So I'm so grateful that I did get caught into it because it, it really gives you a, a preview of, of what's what's to come. And truer words, I, I remember my summer as well. And to your point, you're doing the only thing I'll the only caveat I'll throw on that is that you are doing, you know, the quote unquote bitch work. Uh, so you're not doing exactly the most interesting of legal work when you're a summer because nobody trusts you. And frankly, they're correct in doing so because you know nothing. But you're exactly right that I mean, you only have to read a few leases or contracts before you're your eyes glaze over and you say, is this, <laughs> is this it? Is this really what yeah. I want to do? And, and I was, I had a very similar um, experience with my summer that I, I came out actually somewhat depressed because, you know, you're like, Oh, you're going in and you're this hotshot that got a first year summer gig and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like the prize the, at the end of the, you know, at the end of the rainbow is not at all what I expected and on top of that and maybe you had the same experience I looked around at the lawyers there and this didn't settle in for me until a little bit later on I looked around at the lawyers and nobody seemed to be happy 
You know, there yeah. was a lot of anxiety. There were some great people, like some great people, but a lot of anxiety, a lot of frayed nerves, you know, and it just, nobody seemed to enjoy what they were doing. Yeah, no, I, I had a very similar experience and I can't, I have to be careful what I say because our, my law firm that I articled with is still who represents our mm-hmm. company. So tread uh, lightly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I think it's a very similar thing. And, and I think this is just an endemic of, for the most part, most legal profession, because it's, it's, we're built on an adversarial system. And so you are living your life in and around conflict, which is, is necessarily stressful. And you know, my, my sister and brother-in-law were both lawyers at one point, brother-in-law is now a police officer, but it was, it was the common thread of, of this same thing. And you can see it in, in more tenured lawyers and you feel it when you first start, but you are kind of butting heads all day, every day for your whole career. And some people, if, and, and I think realistically, if you have a, a deep passion for, kind of the roots of law and and the and the theory of it and it really you know it it jives with you and you're drawn to it then you can deal with that stress and that kind of uh collision but if you don't if you're not if you're not really drawn to it then you just every every collision pushes you a little bit further out and, and that's a good point I'm, I'm i'm in no way trying to you know shit on lawyers here and i mean yeah. like there there's a lot of smart people doing good and necessary work uh, it was just for me, uh, incongruent with what I wanted and the type of work I was doing. And I do think there are a lot of lawyers who force it for the paycheck and things like that. But there, to your point, there's, there's some purebreds out there that mm-hmm. uh, seem to just really dig in and really enjoy what they do too. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a no, a no way in trying to slight the entire profession there, but maybe, uh, take me through quickly the, the rest of your, uh, law school career and then you did article at uh, a major Canadian law firm and 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 then what was that like and when did you know that this was well obviously it said pretty much right away you knew but did you make that final decision that you were not going to really practice in law for very long before going into your articles or did you make that decision as you uh, as you worked your way through well it's kind of a bit of both Uh, I had after my summer articles decided that I didn't want to do a career in law, but I was unsure if it was something where I was going to do one, two, three years, pay off student loans, you know, something like that. Right. Uh, but it was, as you got into it and to your point, you know, articling summer articles is not equal articling and, and, and there's definitely a shift. And as I got into it and I just realized that I was so passionate about the side business that I was working on and I did not feel that passion for what I was doing in my legal career. So I just made that, uh, you know, conscious decision that I was going to tee myself up to do a nice, you know, finish what I had started, get called to the bar and then immediately leave and and go into um, the business world. So it was, um, and for the most part, lawyers are very understanding of this mindset. I think a lot of them have a pipe dream and, and wish that they had done something similar when they first started, because it's a lot easier to leave as a, as a first year associate than it is to leave as a partner. And, and so that was for me, I, I basically made that decision while I was starting and, and then uh, teed it up. And, and basically it was just my side project. As soon as I quit being a lawyer, just became my full-time project. And that was, you know, my first foray into entrepreneurship. Well, perfect. I think you teed it up better than I could. And it sounded like it was the passion that you had outside of law that really drew you to it more so than maybe your disdain for some of the the career or the profession of law itself. But maybe just, yeah, tell us about your first foray into entrepreneurship and then tell us about the next couple of years to where you are now, because it's, uh, it's a hell of a tale, my friend. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's it's been a wild ride and it, it feels like it's been a lifetime when it's only been uh, I guess three, three years. So it's, yeah, it's not that long, but it feels like a a world has changed. Um, Actually, just before I get into this, the first thing that I've always had a bit of a, an issue with the law and, and on a, on a philosophical level, please, please, we love philosophy here. (laughs) And it, and it was really driven by the fact that 
it's it's funny because this I'm gonna get really nerdy for you in a second here. I took a philosophy class when I did my undergrad, and and there was a separation that occurred in in the philosophy world between you know thinking very deeply about certain ideas and then what some people would call practical philosophy. You know, how does this actually relate into the way that we live as humans and the things we do? And I think there's a similar shift that we that that is still seen in law and. You know, it's highlighted in law school, but it still exists, honestly, in the real world where we do things because it's the law, because it's the way we've done them before, but they make zero sense and they just cause a bunch of wasted time, effort, money, and and we haven't reformed them because that's the way the law is. And it, it always just made me sick to see the real world waste and, and human consequences of these things that are just you know, bureaucratic, procedural, slow-moving courts. And it's just because courts at their center are tied to the government, which is slow-moving and bureaucratic. And so you you end up with, you know, typed out documents and these like old, old school things that are costing people time, money, life, stress. And and it's, it's uh, I think it's just incredibly wasteful. I mean, you just described pretty much the mission statement of good lawyer there. So, <laughs> and law is... It's an incredibly slow moving industry and there's some good reasons for that, but there's Mm -hmm. also a lot of negatives as well. And I think that you hit the nail on the head there when you see these antiquated, unnecessary, yeah, maybe they made sense in 1972, Mm -hmm. but we're in 2020 now and times have changed. Like, I mean, and I go back to the wet ink requirement for signatures. Uh, I mean, you're like, come on. And and we're finally getting beyond it. We're still not there, but we're, and you're just like, you, what are you talking about? And because everyone dragged their feet for the la- this has been technologically possible since I'm sure the late nineties, but yeah. since everyone dragged their feet and, Oh, we have always done it this way. Now you hit a pandemic and all of a sudden you can't. And shockingly, we figured out a way, you know, yeah. and the same thing with like in court uh, appearances and things like this, you know, Oh no, no, can't do it. Then all of a sudden again, pandemic. Oh, okay. I guess video we can't. And so I agree with you that, that bureaucracy gets frustrating very quick. Yeah, it's, and, and again, I think it's just, it's more than just frustrating, right? And, and it's even, you know, systems that, and, and I think the one that this often hits home for people the most is in, in family law and you see right. divorces and, and custody and these kind of things that they're tearing people apart have real mm-hmm. human consequences and they drag out for years when they just, it doesn't need to be this way. And there's, there's so much reform that's easily available, but because of all these things, these, these ways of doing things, procedures, and it's just, and you just see like having, I was in corporate law, but I just remember, you know, sitting in courtrooms, watching very real human drama unfolding in courtrooms that was just, you know, people don't understand the court system because it's incredibly complicated and, (laughs) and, and and expensive and it's just when people are trying to deal with their real lives and then it's some procedural drama it honestly just made me it's upsetting to be a part of well i and i think you're exactly right again like i'm kind of complaining about wedding signatures but it is important to remember that there are real consequences to the the way things are done currently and you've just highlighted one of the the big ones i mean we could we could talk all day about criminal justice reform too which has so many problems and and again i'm not trying to put any blame necessarily on one individual it's the system right and but one of the key things and you you kind of alluded to it a little bit there. I I think it comes down to is still that we rely on this billable hour and that also that we're self-regulated, you know, and you have, that's kind of a nasty little uh, intersection there because the people in charge are people who are benefiting from the system and are probably the ones who least want to see it change. And, and I think we're kind of stuck in this, in this moment right now where the profession I think is finally going to get driven off a cliff here, where you kind of talked about some of these antiquated regulations and opening it up to uh, more than just lawyers to be able to practice law. Cause already there's so many that do, uh, but there's a million different ways that we can come at this. And again, there's going to take some trial and error and some patience, but I think we know a few of the big issues there that there's still a lot of people making a lot of money and there's a lot of powerful voices in this profession that do not want to see it change and and for some good reasons again i'm not trying to throw them all under the bus but um uh, i think the the negatives at this point definitely outweigh the positives and we definitely need to see some change yeah i mean when this is you know this is some law nerd stuff but as soon as you realize (laughs) why we call 
torts what we do and where the the founding <laughs> of all of these ideas are it's right from you know when kings were making declarations <laughs> and it's just like maybe we should update this maybe we should look at checking into this because it's it's you're still feel you still feel the tailings of hundreds of years ago that just make no sense today right okay well i'm gonna bring you back right. on here yeah. tommy and we're yeah. gonna have an, no, we're gonna have fully nerd out here on uh, the future of law <laughs> we're gonna have a great time at that uh but okay. yeah let's 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 move on uh to, to your businesses here for uh the sake sure. of time yeah. take sure. us through the first couple of years of uh you know you left law um yeah. now what so i left law uh i was working in a in a for a beverage startup that uh, me and my best friend founded. Um, and that kind of, you know, took us to the States and, and started a little journey. And then we ended up bringing in another friend of ours, a mutual friend uh, who was another lawyer and, and had been going through a similar thing. And so the three of us uh, came together and then we started to, um, once you kind of get this entrepreneurship bug uh, and you start living outside of the system of, you know, nine to five and you work for this and, and all of a sudden you realize you can do kind of whatever you want. Uh, just, it just takes effort and ingenuity. Um, we started to get involved in a few different companies. Uh, I think at most we've been involved with, I want to say six or seven, and we ended up kind of creating a bit of a hybrid venture capital uh, entrepreneurship focused group. Uh, we call it Bass Capital. And we do a little bit of management of companies. We do some capital allocation and it's kind of a, a hybrid of, of a venture capital and entrepreneur married together. And it's worked really well for us. It's been uh, kind of like running one company, but that, but more companies. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, explain that a little bit. Like uh, that's, that's really interesting. So do you, do you manage companies outside of what you own? It's yeah, so it's a mix. Usually, we're 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 almost always involved in the company from an equity standpoint. Um, okay. That's the idea. Is instead of just being maybe just passive money, or or just being paid for your services, it's kind of a bit bit of a mix where we're going to come in and and bring um, because you know there's two of us are lawyers and the third one he's a, an accountant and a CFA. So you have a, a lot of kind of corporate, legal, um, finance knowledge, and a lot of entrepreneurs are on the other side of the spectrum where they're specialists in a specific area. You know, I'm a, I'm a beverage expert or I'm a sports expert or whatever it might be, but I have no idea how to file a tax return or incorporate a company. And, and unfortunately, those kind of formalities of business are almost half of a business nowadays. Uh, and, and so that was kind of this natural partnership that we found and that we kind of just kept getting involved with. So we would um, play differing levels of, of involvement and differing levels of management in, in, in the different companies that we were um, involved in. Um, but so then that just kind of evolved across the, the last three years. Um, we've, you know, there, there's, you know, our, our biggest company that we're working with now is, is around, you know, $50 million valuation with, you know, 170 employees and the wow. smallest is, is a few million dollars valuation with one employee. So it's, it's a, it's a spectrum and all different industries. Um, been, we've been very tied obviously to the beverage industry, just cause that's kind of where we first came in. So that a lot of the natural lead offs have been in one way or another tied to the beverage industry, but there's some that are very, very disconnected. <laughs> so, so was this an intentional progression or did you start with and, and the name of the company is, is still meta of course uh, i i presume that was the first yeah that was yeah the that's the company, beverage yeah. company um yeah. yeah i still got one my t-shirt here that i rock <laughs> all the time so awesome. uh yeah <laughs> uh but like was it did it just branch off naturally that you once you got started meta that then you saw the opportunities in this industry or was this always part of the plan no, it was definitely not part of the plan. It was kind of, there wasn't really a plan, to be honest, when we started. Of You know, it was start a company, see what happens. And what... As a good, any good entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think this is most entrepreneurs have a little bit of, uh, you know, shiny object syndrome. And so I think we've gotten a bit better about it now. But when you first start... <laughs> you're you got three hyper intelligent guys and with a lot of work ethic and companies can only move at a certain pace 
And so uh, it was one of those things where there was just an overflow of ambition. And then you start conversations with people and, and they say, hey, you know, why don't you help me do this? And you're like, okay. And, and then, but very much seeing holes in the market. That's, so the biggest, the biggest company that we're uh, working with is, is a company that does beverage co-packing. So it cans beverages for other companies. And it was working with Meta. We were trying to find a co-packer and we called 300 different co-packers in the US and no one could work with us. And we said, well, there's something here. If there's 300 people, 300 companies no we called every single one and none of them can handle us, there's got to be other people like us. And, and we were right. And that's like that com- that's why that company is 170 employees now, because uh, it's it's it was a, it's a huge hole in the industry. Right. Uh, amazing. And so <laughs> so and this all seemed to happen all fairly quickly, too. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is. I, companies can only move so quickly, but right. I think we we probably push it to the brink of of, of, <laughs> of chaos. I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, oftentimes we get the comment that you know you guys work fast, um, but it's it's again, it's three like intelligent, focused guys that are very you know myself, Mitch, and Ryan. Those are my other two partners. Um, we're all incredibly passionate about what we do, and this is this is you know we love it and. And there's fire behind us. So that's what makes it easy to do what we do um, because we, we really believe in it and, and there's passion behind it. You know, how do you manage all of this? You just said, obviously, you have three highly educated, very motivated people. You know, it, that's a lot. And yeah. I know, I know, knowing you personally, I know that having that life balance or whatever word you want to use for that is also important. So how do you go about, uh, and what is your role actually in these companies? Are you CEO? Are you, what, what's your designated role? And then how do you go about managing these various enterprises that, and that, cause I'm sure they don't all behave. It's not like, Hey, okay. They, yeah, they all move at different speeds, but sometimes they probably all move at once too. And yeah. so how do you go about, uh, you know, just keeping your sanity around something like that? I mean, it's not easy. There's, there's, there's a lot of chaos and the, the, so, and I've, I've kind of, my role has shifted with each different company. I've been a little bit more on the legal side. I've been more on the marketing and, and sales side. I've been more, I'm kind of living in the operations world now. Right. Um, but, you know, as an entrepreneur, you wear all the hats. Uh, and, <laughs> and uh, but keeping it together, I mean, the thing that always, whenever I feel that overwhelm and whenever other people are talking to me about overwhelm, I always try to think of, companies like Amazon or, or, you know, Walmart, any company that is massive on a scale that we can't even imagine. And, and thinking about how they manage something like that. And, and realistically, a lot of it is prioritization, organize, organization and, and systems, because that's the only way that humans can function on this level. And I mean, there's a great book on this called the, the checklist manifesto. Love that it just book. Talks, yeah. Just, yeah. you know, and it, and it really talks about when you get, you know, skyscrapers, pilots and, and surgeons that there's, when you, whenever you get to very high, high complexity, high stakes things, the only way that you can truly do it all is, is by being organized, systematic, and, and that's kind of what we have and, and prioritizing, sorry, because it's it, when they make these checklists, they have to be very much, is this the most important thing? Cause you can only fit 10 things on that checklist. Yeah. It's not because I think when you, when, when I first started as an entrepreneur and everyone goes through the same, the same arc of you try to do everything and you're just like trying to wear every hat. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, I can only do X number of things. And, and I have to do those things, do them well and do them frequently. Right. Yeah. And so, so it's really a matter of, and this, I think is one of the scariest parts I know for me personally, as I've gotten deeper into the entrepreneurial space is allowing some fires to burn. And at first that is super scary. And because, you know, you feel like you're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, But eventually you, to your point, that prioritization, you're like, yeah, that's, you have to burn a little bit longer here and I'll get to you, you know, <laughs> but it not, yeah. that's a skill that needs to be learned, I think. Well, and it, it honestly, like it, it's hard. I remember when I, I mean, I'm still only 29, turning, turning 30 in you. a couple of weeks here, you. but uh, prime of, of life. <laughs> yeah, when I, when I was younger, I know some people laugh whenever I say that, but when I was younger, I hated people saying, 
you need experience and or you know this is one of those things you'll just learn but like it it is really the experience of having gone through something that feels like a crisis where you think the world is going to end if you don't solve it like it it feels like the walls are closing in and you've got 20 minutes to save your life and then it that 20 minutes passes and the world just keeps spinning and you go okay maybe it wasn't that much of a crisis right. and then when you've had about 30 or 40 of those <laughs> in 3 years you're like okay you know maybe right. this isn't that big of a crisis Right. So do you put a high emphasis on things like working out or uh, staying healthy and maybe meditating? Is there anything like that that you uh, are absolute must in your days of, as well? Yeah, I mean, I've been uh, a big fitness guy and, and mindfulness practice, and it's been uh, huge for me over the years. I mean, I, I think this is probably this last two months during COVID and traveling has been the worst my fitness has ever been, but I still journal and meditate every morning. Um, and, and the other thing that I've added in there more recently is breathing too, uh, using breathing exercises to kind of, you know, either calm you down or give you energy. Um, that's, those kind of have been my, even when I'm like, cause when I'm trapped, like I, I've been doing, sometimes I'll do a, a stint where I'm on site and I'm working, you know, 10 days in a row, legitimately roll out of bed, in, into work and then you you come home and eat things at nine and you're just back and there's nothing else in my life but I even then I still try to at least get a little like a three minute meditation just something something um to just pull me out of it and and I find breathing exercises are great for that uh especially if you just got off a super stressful phone call and you're because if you if you let it run like it's one of these things where it's honestly the same with intense fitness but you spike your your cortisol and you just are like you know, you got in a big fight or whatever, and then you just like go into the next thing and you just continue your day. It doesn't, it doesn't come back down quickly. It, you'll kind of right. stay at this elevated level. And so I think it's, I, I'm, this is something I'm getting more and more now is after something like that, either intense exercise or intense phone call or, or something that gets me up. I try to either do a breathing exercise or get outside and go for a walk because you don't want to just let that dwell all day or it will uh, eat you up. Very well said. Uh, and yeah, any, any recommendations for breathing exercises? Like where do you learn how to do those? There's, there's really good apps out there to be honest. Okay. Um, okay. there's a book, uh, by James Nestor called breath. Um, it really talks about kind of breathing as well. It's a pretty short book, but it's amazing, amazing read. Um, but there's a few different apps. One's called breath work. There's another one that I use called state um, and it's pretty simple, you know, they're like four minutes and you just select, I want to be energetic or I want to be sleepy and, and then it gives you a different one for it. And they are very effective. Amazing. I'll have to check those out for sure. So, uh, getting kind of back to, to your group here, mm. how do you manage the relationships between three highly intelligent, insanely opportunistic and driven people. I would imagine there that's a, a difficult triangle to keep in balance. For sure. No, it is. And honestly, it's, it's just like a, a normal relationship with a girlfriend or a wife where you need to put time and, and effort into it. Um, it was, we, we, after our, our first like six months or so, we ended up going and working with kind of a specialist, the coach that, that sure. took us through some exercises and, and really what, what it came to was aligning our motivations and aligning our, uh, our understanding of each other. And we kind of came to this realization that we're all working towards the same thing, even if it feels sometimes like we're not that there's, because oftentimes you're going to butt heads because mm -hmm. I think we should go left. You think we should go right. And it feels like if you're saying go in the opposite direction of where I want to go, you're trying to hurt me or sabotage me or something. Right. And oftentimes we're trained to think that that's a malicious thing, you know, this guy is trying to screw me over by telling me the wrong way to go. And, and so really getting on the same page and, and, and developing a deep level of trust that even when it feels like they're pulling in the opposite direction and they're trying to lead us the wrong way, that we're all working towards the same goal. And we've all got kind of the same, we've got the same end point in, in our sites and we're just trying to find different ways to get there. And so we've definitely had like tension like anyone, but, um, it is, it is very invaluable to not be a solopreneur, to be honest. It, it is, I think like some people think about the difficulty of working with partners, tough for sure, but it is, I would choose it uh, way 
over choosing to work on my own. Well, I, I doubt you would be in the place that you are without the other yeah. two. Like, it sounds like you guys are obviously maximally busy as is. So, yeah, but that's interesting that, uh, and really an important point, I think that you guys actively work on your relationship because that's not, that's not like a relationship that you necessarily uh, with your wife or your girlfriend, maybe like, Oh yeah, maybe we should go see a therapist or whatever, but your business partners isn't as maybe recognize that oh yeah maybe that needs the same type of treatment for sure and i think it's it's a point of people just uh kind of leave it to the wayside and and then it it becomes a problem because these and and i've learned this again and again is that you know so much of business is 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 interpersonal relationships and connections and these things don't get better unless you try to make them better they're not you know things just don't improve overnight even though i think some of us think if we just ignore it or look the other way it's going to get better but you you really need to go head on with these things and people are you know we're all complex and we all have different backgrounds so it's it's always going to be a challenge to find common ground but if you put in the effort and and you're committed to it you can make it work i've tried the ignoring it method multiple times in my life and yes it rarely works out the way you hope it does <laughs> no never works especially if it's a reoccurring issue you, you, unfortunately you have to you have to face up and and get those dealt with uh so do you guys just a very quick question though do you guys govern your relationship by like a shareholder agreement or anything like that and was that and if so was that difficult to negotiate without going obviously into the details of what's actually in there? sure it's yeah we we have a, a loose kind of partnership agreement and uh it was not that difficult to negotiate to be honest um i think the 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 real problems come and and luckily this is just the three of us when you're self-interested and like all three of us are very selfless guys and and are really focused on the end goal we don't really care how we get there or what it looks like we just want to to kind of make it and that allowed us to to be very it, you know it was it was basically one day locked in a boardroom and uh, and and worked out but i think that i think that was luck to be honest and and but it you know it, maybe it's not luck that we ended up working together because similar mindset and similar uh ambitions right oh, i love that that's awesome and that, great to hear that there's that amicable and trusting approach that you guys seem to employ, which I think is so critical for, especially for doing intense work like you guys are doing. Um, now, before we started the recording here, we, we discussed a few of the, the legal horror stories that uh, are sometimes encountered by uh, startups. And obviously you guys are in a bit of a different situation having two lawyers on your team. That said, one of the mistakes that a lot of entrepreneurs make is outsourcing the legal work completely. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and because let's be honest, unless you're trained and even, even then legal work can be very complex, especially if you have multiple things going on. Uh, you really need to have a deep understanding of, of the issues that you're facing to do it properly. And I think a lot of that scares and rightfully scares a lot of people. So they just will pay for it or do whatever they need to do or ignore it or whatever. But when you're dealing, you had a story about dealing with uh, some lawyers and maybe doing a bit of that. I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but do you want sure. to just take us through uh the lessons learned there yeah for sure and and i think the you know one time a director on, on one of our boards said to myself and mitch that he thinks it it's a it's almost a disservice that we have a legal background because lawyers are trained to focus on risk right and and entrepreneurs should be focused on opportunity so oftentimes and we are so guilty of this is you know, a lot of people when they are looking at a deal, they're, oh, how much money can I make? And we're going like, how are we going to get sued out of this? <laughs> yeah. and, and we've had to shift that a lot. But uh, we went through a transaction um, that had a very heavy legal component. It was um, for, for tax reasons and the structure of the deal had uh, a very intense legal component. And you see kind of firsthand um, what can happen if uh, uh, someone is basically putting all of their faith and trust into a lawyer and, and, and they don't recognize that a lawyer's job is to highlight risk and they are going to find any and all risks and bring them to you. And, and that's good. But what you need to recognize is, and I, and I always try to explain this concept is if you 
oftentimes are making a trade-off between a known quantity loss or, or cost, which is the cost of trying to do something about that risk, which happens now, and we, and the odds of that happening, which is basically right. insurance, right? This is you know, the idea of I'm paying $10 today so that if my phone gets broken next month, I can get it replaced. I don't have to spend $500. And so there's this, you know, you have to do this weight adjusted kind of the risk in the future versus the cost to me now. But, you know, when you're in a, in a, in a transaction like this, you're weighing the cost of it, an hour of my lawyer reviewing this versus the potential of it causing a problem in the future. Right. And if you don't understand the legal system or how these things work, it's hard to weigh those two because someone goes to you and says, well, if you sign this, there's potential risk that you're going to get audited or you're going to get X, Y, Z. It's going to cost you a hundred million dollars and, you know, you could go to prison and you as a, you know, not knowing what's going on, you go, oh my God, that sounds horrible. Like we should definitely do everything to stop that. What they leave out often is, Hey, when's the last time the IRS sent someone to prison for something this small? Right. Never. Oh, okay. So it theoretically as a legal possibility, if you read the law that it says, you know, up to five years or a hundred thousand dollar fine, do they actually levy those fines? You know, and this is a criminal aspect because there's, but there's, there's, there's a ton of this in the business world, which is like, you know, a great example I think is, is a, is a non-disclosure agreement. When you read a non-disclosure agreement, there's oftentimes they sound scary and tense and it's like, five years down the road, you know, they might do this and I'm liable for this. And it's just, but then how often do NDAs actually do anything? Do they come into play anywhere? And it's one of those things you need to just do enough. So there's, you're not just open to it, but you, you don't, you're not, you're not a billion dollar company and you don't need to think like one. You don't need to act like one. Like you need to judge your legal requirements for where you're at as a person. And it's very hard for someone that's not a lawyer that hasn't been exposed to this to understand and evaluate those, that that kind of trade-off. Right. Yeah. And I I think that's so important. Uh, And, and and one of the things that, again, that we're trying to help solve is that, that um, imbalance in information, because to your point, unless you're trained as a lawyer, a lot of these things, you would never think about them in a million years, most likely, unless you've unfortunately gone through it. And then obviously Mm -hmm. you learn, but that's a tough and expensive way of learning. But uh, I think just to highlight kind of one of the points you said too, is that lawyers are meant to be there as your advisor, Mm -hmm. you know, they, and, and I think a lot of times people get a little bit intimidated by lawyers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just should go to law school. You'll be quickly dispelled with this, but uh, (laughs) it's, you know, uh, get a little bit intimidated and say, Oh, you're the expert in much in the same way that I might do that in a doctor's office or something. Cause I don't know anything about medicine. So, okay, Mm -hmm. sure. But it's at the end of the day, just like it's my body, it's your company. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you want to be plugged in and making sure that, hold on, let me think about this. Okay. Mm -hmm. A million different ways that you can go kind of educate yourself fairly easily and and make sure that you're plugged in it. The lawyer at the end of the day is taking your instructions to the best of your ability. Now, there there is that point where you will have to trust most their judgment because you're not going to learn the tax code uh, in, in mm-hmm. a, you know enough to make that call, but um especially for smaller businesses, you know, these are pretty understandable issues. A lot of the things that you're going to face, and there's some, a lot of great information out there. So I would just say for your sake and the lawyers and for your wallet's sake, you know, make sure you're engaging as much as possible. Yeah. I think it's that you, you hit on it well, which is you need to push back a little bit oftentimes and really kind of dig deeper and ask the follow-up question, which is, this is a risk. Yes. Okay. What is the likelihood of this risk? Right. How often does this happen? Because oftentimes people, and they did this in law school, you know, there's a, a famous case in Canada where someone forgot a comma right. and, and it cost a, it turned a lawsuit that was millions of dollars. And so now everyone's reading everything. Like, did I miss a comma? <laughs> did I miss a comma? And it's like, when you actually go to court one time and lawyer and the judge just like, he, he doesn't care. He forgot he's a comma. Just, <laughs> yeah. He doesn't even think about it. You know, he's just looking at the broad strokes of like, you yeah. know, and hey, what's going on here. It's not reading everything that you gave him. And so it's this, it's that gap between, yeah, if it's a billion dollar deal and you're, and you're taking a, you know, purchasing a public company, probably like get a lot of lawyers and listen to them. But if you're buying a car, you know what I mean? It's, it's not, you do not need the same level of intensity. Right. Right. Now, and just before I'm cognizant of the time here, but before I let you go, we were talking about another thing right before the show that was fascinating. You were talking about the, I believe you said the difference between long work and hard work. Now, obviously 
you know, you guys are putting in a lot of hours these days, but maybe just highlight that because I think this is a super important principle that maybe some first time entrepreneurs feel that they need to be burning the candle at both ends and aren't really taking into consideration the quality of work. So maybe just go through that and just tell me your thoughts on that now that you're, you know, a few years in. Yeah. The distinction, and I'm, I'm, I don't know who I stole this from, but it's definitely not my distinction, but the (laughs) distinction between long work and hard work. And as I see it and I felt it is, is long work is just working a lot of hours. And, and, you know, this is, and this is when I think of a lot of the people who are some of the hardest workers, you know, that are, you know, my brother-in-law, police officer, my mother and nurse, where you work in 12 hour shifts, night shifts. And, and it, it is a lot of long work. You're spending a lot of hours. Whereas hard work, you spend the same number of hours as those nurses and, and doctors and whomever. But when you're an entrepreneur, there's, there's a, the uncertainty of, is this actually going to pay me out? Because when I'm a police officer and I work a night shift, I know I'm getting X number of dollars every hour that I'm on the clock. When you're an entrepreneur, you have no guarantee of any payback for any of the time you put in. And B, you're also often taking risks. It's, it's I'm, I'm paying someone else to work on this, to put it in, in the potential that it might pay me back. And so that, that added layer is what they call hard work because, and, and, and to really be able to multiply your, your reward is, is you have to take those risks on the front end. And it's a lot more difficult to do something without knowing that you're going to get any uh, remuneration. And this is, you know, I think a simple example of this honestly is, is going to university or getting education is that you're putting in time knowing that it, it's a bit easier with university because we kind of know a lot. it's easier for me to get a better job or something like that. But entrepreneurship is basically this where I might be teaching my, I'm, I'm going to teach myself to code. So I'll be able to write a, a program that I want to be able to sell, but there's no chance I could spend a hundred hours learning to code and thousands of dollars on courses and no one buys my program sunk lost cost, you know, and, and, that is entrepreneurship to a T is you will spend a lot of time on certain things and then gone, no value driven. And you just have to be prepared for that. And I think like the takeaway from it always is, you know, you learned something and and you've learned (laughs) a lesson and you've got some experience and you can roll that into your next one because they are unavoidable. Um, But that distinction I think is, and this is where I think lawyers do a lot of long work. You know, they, I, you see this when you, if you ever go to, I mean, a lot of law firms, there's some of the hardest working people I've ever yep. met. Uh, that is it's 365, 24, seven, you know, those, those offices are bumping on Saturdays with people sacrificing their weekends to work hours, but it doesn't, it's not like they get this inordinate amount of success to other people that work hard. The only thing that separates those people that are able to kind of like make those big jumps are the people that are doing the hard work, which is the, taking the risks and they have no idea if they're going to get any reward. Right. So how, how do you manage that? Like, how do you live in that state of uncertainty and not go insane? I think this is probably where the, the genetic predisposition to be an entrepreneur is or not. And for me, I was raised fairly modestly. I don't want to say poor because I think it's unfair to some of the truly poor people in the world, but sure. very modest by Canadian standards. And so we didn't have a lot growing up and, and I didn't have a lot of luxuries, but I had a, a ton of love and an amazing family. And you learn that it's okay. That if that's the worst case scenario, you know, living in a, in a developed country with intelligence and like family, that if you, everything fails and that's what I have to fall back on, it's not that bad of a scenario. Uh, and so like, for me, it's been easy to take risks because I'm not the, the, my net is that if everything fails, I've still got a family that loves me and good friends and I'm in a safe place. So it's and kind of a lawyer and, and I've been educated. <laughs> so I, I've got some, some skill sets to fall back on. So it's, it's made it easier to play those, but it, don't get me wrong. It's still, it still can keep you up at night 100%. and keep your blood pressure a little high. Right. If I could give any advice to people that are kind of navigating this entrepreneurship legal world, um, it's 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 actually from Amazon's. They've got like their tenants for executives, and one of them is you should have a bias towards action. And I think that that is if you are in the business world, but you've got this legal sensation, lean towards action because don't be someone that lets risk 
run your life, be someone that lets action run your life. And the, all the things that I like, let me keep me up at night and let me, you know, analysis paralysis. And if I had just, just fall to the other side and it's going to make a big difference in, in how you feel and what you do. Um, not saying to bet the farm and do things over the line, <laughs> but definitely, definitely lean to, towards action and not towards the risk. Love it. So as a final question, and I always like, and as uh, you'll recognize this, both being fans of Tim Ferriss, uh, but I always like to ask if there are any resources, be those books or podcasts, and you can't say the Tim Ferriss show, uh, that have helped you out along your way that you believe could be beneficial for others. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a big reader, so I've had a, a lot of books that have impacted me greatly throughout my life. I mean, that realistically, if it depends on which field you're going into, but it, it never fails that if you just Google your field and then, and I do this all the time, when, when we started managing a bunch of people, you know, I Googled best management books right. and you get, you know, writ books written by former executives at HP and, and, and the, the classics, you know, how to win friends and influence people, um, the effective executive, you know, all stuff that Tim recommends, but there's a, there's a list of, of, you know, 20 books in the business world that have been around for the most part, 30 to a hundred years. And there's a reason why. And I think that getting like starting there is, yeah. is, is always going to help people, but realistically it, it do something that's what you're on that right, right now and that's like i switched to doing this where read whatever i'm working on at the time so um but i mean i'm gonna if for any entrepreneur starting out um i'm gonna recommend chip wilson's favorite book uh which is the e-myth um and it's it's kind of the best book that explains the problem of entrepreneurship and really does a good job of of setting the stage that i wish i had read earlier on into my entrepreneurship career. Um, but he made everyone at Lululemon read it. And, uh, and it's a great book. And that's kind of one of the, the safest for an entrepreneur to start with. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Tommy, I, uh, it's been too damn long since I've seen you. Uh, I'm glad that we were able to take this podcast as a reason to catch up. I appreciate you giving me one of your very valuable hours. Uh, and you know, and I, I hope we can do it again and stay in touch a little bit better than we have for the last couple of years. Sounds great. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again for joining us. If you liked what you heard, please rate, download and subscribe. Until next time, we hope you have a great week.